Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, it's the countdown to summer with many of us planning to hit the beach, head to a friend's pool, or maybe for a swim at a nearby river or lake. There have been three drownings in our state since May. In 2020, there were 24 accidental drownings in Connecticut. How confident are your swimming skills? Coming up, we hear from the American Lifeguard Association about the need for better water competency. There's also been a lifeguard shortage in recent years. How will the shortage impact swim lessons offered by town parks and recreation departments? We talked to the Connecticut Recreation and Parks Association. That's just ahead. First, last week where we live, we spent time talking about intimate partner violence after the high-profile defamation trial between celebrities and former spouses Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. Now, nearly one year ago, the definition of domestic violence was expanded in our state to include coercive control when the Connecticut General Assembly passed a bill and the governor signed Jennifer's Law. Joining us now to explain on Zoom with us, Dr. Christine Cochiola, who's a coercive control advocate, educator, researcher, and survivor. She's also a professor at Naugatuck Valley Community College and an adjunct at NYU. Christine, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me today, Lucy. Listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, many people may not understand what coercive control is when we think about domestic violence, Christine. So so let's start there. Can you define it for us? Absolutely. So um, what's really important to recognize is the, the law became effective in October of last year, and it codified coercive control as a form of domestic violence. And what that really means is that instead of looking at domestic violence through the violent incident model, we can actually look at it as all encompassing. It can be psychological abuse, which might include intimidation, gaslighting, manipulation, and isolation. It can be legal abuse, financial abuse. It can be sexual abuse. It can be use of the children as pawns, which as I'm sure you could imagine is probably the most heartbreaking. So the idea that when we think of abuse, it is it can be non-physical. And so, you know, what started this ball rolling to expand this definition to protect uh, people in our state, Christine? Sure. So we are so fortunate because we have basically the international expert on course of control who lives right in Woodbridge, Connecticut, Dr. Evan Stark. And he was working um, in the UK in trying to pass legislation along with uh, Laura Richards that would make coercive control illegal, a criminal offense. And so what's happened here in the United States is now we have five states that are recognizing non-physical violence as actual domestic violence. And the reason behind that is because what we know about domestic abuse, and I call it domestic abuse because oftentimes there is not physical violence. Um, the, what we know about it is that very often, um, actually in most cases, it starts 
as power and control. So there are two baby, basically distinct types of domestic abuse. And one is situational, where perhaps one person or both people participate in behaviors that may have to do with trauma for sure, but certainly have to do with maladaptive coping. In other words, when they're really angry and frustrated, they might be physically violent. And obviously there's no excuse for that. Obviously that's a problem and certainly people get harmed pretty significantly, but that what we know about domestic abuse now and the research shows us over and over again is that most domestic abuse is based on this power and control. So in our state in 2007, Jennifer Mignano, one of the namesakes of Jennifer's law was murdered because she left finally an abusive relationship, fled to California to find housing, to find shelter and her um, future ex-partner actually engaged with the court system, the judicial system here in Connecticut and the police, and accused her of kidnapping her children when she was seeking safety. And so she had to come back to court um, here in Connecticut. And that's when she was murdered in front of her children in Terryville, Connecticut. Um, Jennifer Duos, which is obviously a relatively newer case in 2019, but again, it's this idea of being engaged in the court system. The, the legal abuse tends to be very significant with these cases. As a matter of fact, we know that about 50% of custody disputes are coercive control and that when a victim decides to leave, that's actually when she is most at risk um, of harm. And um, there's a really interesting study out of California in 2008. And, and the only reason why we don't have um, newer research since 2008 is because it's difficult to get access to these databases. But in 2008, Vitez and Sorensen did some research. And what they found was that out of 231 domestic abuse victims who left offenders and filed for ROs, restraining orders, mm -hmm a fifth of them were murdered within five days. So we know that victims are most at risk and that's when the abuse intensifies. 90% of coercive control victims suffer intensifying coercive control during post-separation abuse. Hearing Dr. Christine Cochiola here on Where We Live as we talk about Jennifer's Law. Again, uh, this was passed and signed into law about a year ago, went into effect uh, last October um, as we uh, learn more about how this expands uh, the definition of domestic uh, violence or domestic abuse. Uh, so when we think about the protections that are in place now, Christine, uh, when you described how Jennifer Menuno was killed after she had to return to Connecticut uh, for a court proceeding. Um, what does the, the landscape, I guess, look like now in terms of how this law protects people when they're seeking uh, an order like a restraining order? So I think what's really important is that we really need to begin as much as possible invoking the words Jennifer's Law because we're noticing now in the state of Connecticut that judges and attorneys are more alert when they hear the words Jennifer's Law. So that's really good news. And and I would say that oftentimes this is really about education. I've been going around to uh, local uh, bar associations discussing with them what coercive control is and do this just as a lunch and learn. Anybody can call me in to do this. And the idea behind it is to just explain the nuances of coercive control because um, if we don't understand that oftentimes these offenders have certain personality traits that 
make it very difficult for even the most astute of us, even the most astute of us to recognize that they may in fact be an abuser. These are people who present extremely well, have, um, you know, lustrous careers or not so lustrous careers, but they certainly present very well. So in, in reference to what Jennifer's Law is doing now, so last week, um, your victim that you had on and survivor, um, she actually wasn't aware that she can get a restraining order now without going to the courthouse, which is really fantastic. And she does not have to face her abuser. She can get the court two days notice and explain that she wants to be virtual. And what I tell my clients is put a sticky note over the person's face when you're doing a Zoom um, restraining order hearing. Um, so that's really great news that what Jennifer's Law does. The other thing that Jennifer's Law does that's very important is it, it asks judges to look at frivolous filings. These abusers like to keep, um, as a matter of fact, Rosenfeld did an amazing study in 2019 where he talks about how these people are drawn towards conflict, not away from it. They enjoy the game. This is uh, unfortunately like a game for them. So they will continue to keep victims engaged in court. And as you could imagine, it's a huge financial, um, like obviously financial burden to carry. Um, so what we know is that judges, if they're given the right information and they see frivolous filings, that that is something that they can sanction. They can say, this is, why are you, why are you wanting your other, the other person to come back to court so frequently? And they can be alerted to that and they can stop that. They can sanction that behavior. Another thing that is really important, and Dr. Um, Dr. Evan Stark talks about this, and certainly Alex Kazer, who was behind this bill, um, and um, with the support of so many people, by the way, Connecticut Protective Moms, and we just we had um, we had really significant people at our hearing. We had eleven hours of testimony because there are people who want this legislation to pass across the country, and. Um, so what we know is that oftentimes children are used as pawns. So this may be a person who maybe previously really wasn't as involved in childcare, but now wants 50-50 or more care of the children. And when someone has been an abuser, um, it's, it's very difficult to imagine your children going to that home and spending time with that person, even again, if it wasn't physical violence, if there was a psychological abuse going on, those children have been traumatized by that. And that's actually my area of interest and expertise is, is learning about the experiences of children. So what we have now in the state of Connecticut is that the law says that the, the safety and well-being of children shall be a primary factor. Now, the reason why I emphasize shall is because shall does not mean that it is the primary factor. There is not one state in our country that puts children as the prime, their safety and well-being as the primary factor. And as an aside, or perhaps not an aside, domestic violence and child abuse are not siloed issues. They are one in the same. When there is domestic violence in a home, children are not victims to or exposed to domestic violence. Excuse me, they are not exposed to or witnesses to, they are victims of domestic violence. Hmm. If you have a question about Jennifer's Law, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, for people who are trying to leave a, a dangerous situation, you know, some may not have uh, the resources to have legal representation. How does Jennifer's Law help uh, those who are seeking a restraining order, Christine? 
Yes, so I think the most important thing for victims to be aware of is that it's important that they share their story with people that they know can support them because it truly does take a village to leave an abuser. It's it's um, isolating and oftentimes victims are ashamed and they shouldn't be ashamed because they haven't done anything wrong. There are people, unfortunately, in this world, as I said, there is a significant personality trait. I call it character logical issues that people have that the only way that they feel good in this world is if they have power and control over others. And when people begin to move away from that, say a partner, that's when they're going to sincerely and intensely attempt to gain more control. And so Jennifer's Law allows people to get a restraining order virtually. You can go online and apply for a restraining order. And again, you can you can do the hearing. You can be at the hearing via Zoom instead of having to go in person. I think it's so important that victims reach out to their local umbrella agencies um, and express that they feel that they're being coercively controlled. And that would be the terminology to use um, because this is really about shifting the way that we think about domestic abuse. And I guess that would be, um, you know, Amber Heard in her situation is certainly, if we had been able to look at that situation through the lens of coercive control, those of us who work in the field, we have no doubt that she is a victim and that that was an example of somebody, um, we call it DARVO in the community, deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. And a lot of people said that she was playing victim when actually, if you look very closely at the case and the pathology and the long-term pattern of behavior of coercive control, it's very evident that one person in that, in that relationship had power and control. I introduced you as a coercive control advocate educator, researcher, and survivor. Uh, Christine, as a survivor, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, the importance of, of having people like yourself involved in this work uh, to advocate for others. Sure. So, um, you know, I'm fortunate because I had a world of support with friends and family. And I know that sometimes survivors, what, what the perpetrator um, does often is isolate victims. And so then they do, and especially during COVID, by the way, we really, that is the pandemic in the pandemic um, is domestic violence that occurred during COVID. So um, I would say that what's important, I, I would go back to the shame conversation. It's important that victims understand that they have nothing to be ashamed of, that when people try to control us, what they really are trying to do is strip us of our autonomy. Dr. Evan Stark calls it unknowing what we know. Like, so in my particular situation, I have a wonderful career and I have wonderful family and friends, but there were things going on the home in the home that I was so confused about, but I kept dismissing them because I had lost my ability to make decisions that I knew were in my best interest in the home. And so I asked victims to think about who are they? And if this was their mother, sister, brother, aunt, whoever it is, their friend, would they be concerned and worried about that person? And if the answer is yes, then they probably are a victim and they probably need some support. And when they need that support, would you recommend they reach out to Connecticut's um, domestic violence hotline, Christine? Are there other resources that you suggest? 
Sure. So the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence and certainly any of the umbrella agencies, you know, also online, the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence has support. And so does um, any like domesticshelters.org. They just published an article by Dr. Lisa Fontes and Pamela Miller. And that article talks specifically about course of control in the home. So there's a lot of resources out there that people can um, take advantage of and begin to at least feel a little more empowered so that they can begin to move towards separating from the abuser. Thank you so much for coming on uh, to explain uh, Jennifer's Law again. Uh, it's been almost a year since the Connecticut General Assembly passed and the governor signed it uh, in effect in October, but important to know that these resources exist and there are protections in place uh, for uh, people experiencing domestic abuse. I wanted to mention that Connecticut Domestic Violence uh, Hotline, uh, who are people who are listening, you can also text 888-774-2900. I've been speaking with Dr. Christine Cochiola, again, a course of control advocate, educator, and survivor. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Now, after the break, lifeguards are more than just a summer job, but with low pay and fewer people trained as lifeguards, how safe will it be to swim this summer? We talk to the American Lifeguard Association, and we hear from the Connecticut Recreation and Parks Association, too. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Now, summer usually means trips to the beach. Maybe you're heading over to your friend's pool more often and with warmer temperatures, a swim at a nearby river or lake. In 2020, there were 24 accidental drownings, more than the previous year, according to the Connecticut Office of the Medical Examiner. And before Memorial Day this year, two Connecticut residents drowned, a 16-year-old in Lyme, Connecticut, a 34-year-old in Guilford. NBC Connecticut reported on May 30th, another man drowned in a pond at Ross Hill Campground in Lisbon. Now, we reached out to the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, or DEEP, about the recent drownings, but we did not hear back. Now, since the pandemic, there's also been a lifeguard shortage nationwide. The American Lifeguard Association says this shortage affects about one-third of public pools across the country. And how will this shortage impact swim lessons offered by local town parks and recreation departments? In a few minutes, we'll hear from the Connecticut Recreation and Parks Association. But joining us first on Zoom is Wyatt Werneth, who's with the American Lifeguard Association. Wyatt, welcome to our show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Wyatt, I understand you've been a lifeguard for more than 30 years. I mentioned at the top, a lot of people get their start as a summer job. You know, what about you? How did you get into being a lifeguard? Well, yes, ma'am. Thank you. I have been a lifeguard for over 30 years, and I'm currently a lifeguard. Yeah, I, I got my start, uh, junior lifeguard programs, of course, and I joined the uh, military, uh, Coast Guard search and rescue stuff there worked as a career lifeguard under the fire department for ocean rescue retired as ocean rescue chief and believe it or not i currently do water safety and lifeguarding for the movies <laughs> interesting so you work uh within the entertainment industry that's correct uh people aren't aware of stuntmen we actually provide water safety for the movie stars and on set 
uh, and and we uh, kind of provide the boat safety, anything to do with the water diving stuff, and it's pretty exciting. So it definitely keeps my skills up, and uh, as well as I, I'm an instructor, so I teach lifeguards throughout the year. We even go over to like St. Martin, Bahamas, and stuff like that, and do instructional or water safety over there. So yes, staying with it, lifeguard for life. <laughs> Now, you've got an extensive background. You're exactly the type of person I want to have around, especially if my kids are out swimming. But can we talk about the shortage uh, that we're hearing about since the pandemic, especially? I quoted the American Lifeguard Association that, you know, this shortage impacts about one third of public pools across our country. You know, what are some of the reasons behind this? Well, absolutely. We're considering this a uh, critical lifeguard shortage. And we believe, you know, the impacts primarily from the uh, the pandemic, COVID, you know, took a, a hard hit. It, uh, it sidelined us through uh, um, social distancing, which our training is up close and personal. We also see, have an effect from the V1 work visas where we would get exchange students from over in Europe. And believe it or not, the, uh, the, the war with Ukraine and Russia, we'd get a lot of uh, candidates from Russia and Ukraine coming over. Right? We'd have about five a year apply at my, my agency. And also competitive salaries. The big retail stores and the restaurants are matching um, pretty much what lifeguards get paid throughout the pool and the water parks. Now, keep in mind this. There, there's like three venues of lifeguarding. You got your water parks, you got pools, and you got open water beaches. Now, we're not seeing as much of an impact in the open water beaches area because a lot of them are funded by the state, the city, the county, like my agency, and we're professional lifeguards, a fourth element fire police, EMS, and lifeguards. So those guys are there. And when we do have any kind of what we consider a shortage, we extend our hours, we, we modify, we're there. Or, you know, we try to be there. But what's being affected mostly, as all these things you were talking about, these drownings, are lifeguards in the areas that are seasonal where it's warm regions and they rely heavily on the lifeguards who come in from college and high school and things like that. They're not seeing them, so... Therefore, we're having the fatalities that you're talking about today. It's unfortunate. So people are going into water at their own risk. Uh, you mentioned you started out as a junior lifeguard. And so tell us about that program. When we think about how the pandemic even put a pause on some of those training and certifications uh, to help, uh, you know, certify these these young, capable uh, teenagers who may become uh, lifeguards. Well, you know, that's a good point to to look at let's look at that real heavy is learn to swim america junior lifeguard programs across america are kind of that first step but even to go to those programs you have to be a strong swimmer we have a, a problem with people understanding water confidence you know you can teach your kid water confidence in the bathtub and it's simply just putting their head in the water getting used to it and then of course we got to get out and learn to swim because at some point in your life you're going to vacation to some area where there's water a junior lifeguard program is an excellent way you, not only do you uh, learn water confidence, but you also learn the skills necessary to become a first responder. You know, they, it's kind of the uh, the breeding ground for lifeguards or EMS. A lot of the guys that come out of junior lifeguard programs don't stop at lifeguarding. They advance on even into the military or law enforcement or fire because it's the structure. Being a lifeguard has a unique opportunity to stop an incident before it happens, but you have to be alert. You have to watch the water read the water, read the crowd, pre-water detection. And with all these things built in, it develops a, a, a skill set that is perfect for first responder. And, you know, being able to save someone's life is a gift that you, you cannot replace with anything. 
And I've actually laid my hands on three people that I've had to do CPR and they're alive today to talk about it. Now that's not counting all the ones I've run out and grabbed and pulled out of the water. I'm talking about people who were, who were out and I did CPR. So that keeps me going. And, and, you know, Ronald Reagan was a lifeguard and he said some of his most memorable days was when he was a lifeguard. So you could probably be a president someday if you become a lifeguard. It's a great skill set for a foundation of, you know, the future. You're hearing Wyatt Werneth here on Where We Live. He's with the American Lifeguard Association. As we talk about a lifeguard shortage uh, nationwide, you know, coming up, we're going to hear from um, some local Connecticut organizations who are also looking to hire uh, lifeguards and water instructors, especially in the summer months and some of the challenges there. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, when we think about learning to swim, you know, are there also income disparities that we need to acknowledge? knowledge why you know certain communities that may not have robust uh, uh, funding and they're they're competing with some of these you know private um, you know clubs and and organizations that are also hiring uh, lifeguards people who were certified and so you know the the idea that you know it might be easier for some to learn to swim than others uh, based on where they live no absolutely that's something that we have has been discussion lately um, you know it's difficult to fix that issue other than the fact that I said earlier that, you know, you can, you can get water confidence in the bathroom. One of the things that we look for pre-water detection for people who come to the beach is that person that holds their nose whenever the water laps into their face or the person who has to wipe their face continuously. They don't want to get their ears wet. That's simply just, you know, water confidence is put your face in the water, get your head submerged and then come up without having to wipe your face frantically. Those are things that, you know, help, if you were to get into a situation to open water or fall in and stay calm, it, it's all about the panic. Of course, then floating, you can get someone to float and, you know, a small, a small one, a, a little guy, a little girl could get into a tub and lay horizontal and kind of learn to float. That's important. They actually have infant, um, you know, swim classes here in Florida, all over the world, I believe. And that's kind of what they teach. And they kind of do it in a shallow body of water. Of course, you have to pay for those programs. But if we could bring that back into the house, like I said, learn to swim America, get some self-training. Unfortunately, we're going to have to request that people do self-lifeguarding. We want you to provide a water watcher if you are going to the water, someone who can swim, someone who perhaps knows CPR, that can be vigilant and watch the group, kind of like your own lifeguard. So that's things we got to do to make this a safe summer, and we have to adapt just like we did during COVID. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live as we're talking about a lifeguard shortage with Wyatt Werneth from the American Lifeguard Association. Uh, Valerie Stolfi Collins is with us. She's Executive Director of Connecticut Recreation and Parks Association. Valerie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lisa. I appreciate it. So when we talk about a lifeguard shortage, you know, when did you start to see uh, this be a problem in Connecticut? And, you know, how are you working with your, your members to try to, to have uh, qualified lifeguards in places where, you know, people need them? Certainly. Um, so the shortage actually, especially in the New England area where there's a seasonal nature to lifeguarding um, predates the pandemic, but it was obviously made worse during the pandemic. Um, a lot of our pools did not open and therefore um, we saw um, 
those certified guards lose their certifications and like Wyatt said, go into other jobs um, for the summer. Um, so what we've been doing um, even before COVID, but now more during, um, is to help our members market. Um, so we started a social media campaign. Um, we've also talked to our members about going into their local high schools or their rec swim programs and recruiting through the swim teams. That's how I became a lifeguard um, when I was uh, 15, 16, many years ago. So um, it's really recruiting. Um, and then obviously we're increasing wages. Um, I think this year alone in talking to my members, they've increased wages two to five dollars per hour. One that's caused by the inflationary, like deflationary mm -hmm. um, measures that are happening um, nationwide, but two to um, also recruit those lifeguards back out of those other minimum wage jobs that are working at like the local ice cream shop or the pot pots and things like that. So to bring them back in. But again, our um, our guards need to be certified as well. So we can't just hire um, right now. We need to hire and start working on that over the winter so that they can attend the 27 to 32 hour class and be ready for the summer season. You mentioned uh, that some of your members have, have had to boost pay. How does uh, Connecticut's um, minimum wage increases impacted uh, even those uh, extra few dollars that maybe some of your members are able uh, to pay? And now with the minimum wage going up, um, you know, how that impacts, uh, you know, trying to find people that, that are able to do these jobs and want them. Um, I think that's also been a strong um, indicator of the shortage. Um, we anticipated that moving forward. We actually testified at the Capitol, and, and obviously we want to support better wages, but at the same time we knew it would hurt the lifeguard shortage that had existed pre-COVID. Um, so um, uh, I think that that and COVID has, has created the shortage here in New England um, and specifically Connecticut. But... Um, our members are doing what they can to increase um, the hourly rates, but you're, you are gonna see some beaches this year along the shoreline that are unmanned for the first time in the history of those beaches because they don't have enough guards. So it's swim at your own risk. Um, and we wanna make sure people that are in those unmanned areas know that they need to go in with a life jacket or they need to go in with a, a, you know, a buddy. We do not want um, them swimming alone in unsupervised areas. Mm -hmm. um, we are also seeing some communities kind of reduce hours at their pools, maybe open a half an hour late or close a half an hour early because they don't have enough guards to, to staff, um, unfortunately. So everything you describe is really problematic uh, to hear, uh, Valerie. Again, you can join us as we talk about you know shortages and lifeguards in our state. Um, we had asked the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection uh, for a statement about um, you know water safety and you know, some of the drownings we've already seen in our state. We did not hear back from them. But something that you shared about certain air beaches along the shore. Are we talking about public areas, uh, Valerie, that will may not have lifeguards um, as you? You said the first time in, in a long time yes they're municipal owned shoreline beaches mm. and so your members are municipalities and so um they're looking to recruit still as as we're talking uh, to find some people to be lifeguards and they may not be able to to get those those people by the time the the crowds start to build correct so i can actually plug branford park and rec is looking to hire um they have a pool and two um 
beachfronts on the ocean. Um, and they are still actively hiring. They have never um, had an unmanned beach. Um, so I, I promised one of my members that I would plug them. So if you're, look, if you're a certified lifeguard for waterfront um, and you're over the age 16 or older, um, you can go to um, Brantford Park and Recreation's website and, and apply. Um, so what we are seeing, the trends here in Connecticut are, um, we're hiring much later than typically. Um, typically guards have all been hired by now. Typically in June, we're not still hiring. So that's something mm -hmm. that's a little different. Um, and obviously, um, um, increased rate wages. So, um, it's, it's a great job to have, um, in talking of lifeguarding. Again, I was a lifeguard at 16. Um, and, um, it shows great responsibility on college applications. Um, it gives you that kind of leg up. Um, it looks great on your resume for future employers. It shows that you're a responsible person that you can, you know, you're entrusted with saving lives as Wyatt had mentioned. Um, and it has great hours because it's it's really when the sun's up you're out there at night the beach is closed so it doesn't as a high school or a college it doesn't impact your social life um for nighttime so i think those are some benefits as well um so those are my little plugs to any um parents that have teenagers that are strong swimmers and can pass the lifeguard course um it's a great um it's a great first job to have mm. And we're going to be talking more about uh, the certification uh, process. Again, you're hearing with us on Zoom, Valerie Stolfi-Collins, Executive Director of the Connecticut Recreation and Parks Association. Uh, Valerie, uh, stay with us. Uh, Wyatt Werneth, uh, before we let you go, you know, how do you respond to just the, the picture that's been painted uh, here in Connecticut when it comes uh, to this shortage? Well, unfortunately, I think that's going to be mirrored across America and a lot of other areas. So it's, it's very tragic. You know, being a lifeguard, we're all about preventative and, and we're, we're struggling to trying to find a way to prevent this. Uh, I heard a, I heard a quote um, recently that said, you know what, we can't do anything about the problem, but we're going to try to manage it the best that we can. And when we think about the average pay that's offered uh, to lifeguards, uh, definitely uh, needs boosted, Wyatt? Well, you know, uh, that's a sensitive issue for me. Um, I did retire from an agency as a career lifeguard. In my community, I was the first one to actually retire with a special risk as a lifeguard from the fire department. Uh, I think lifeguards aren't taken as serious as the job is. You know, we're responsible for sitting there and watching your family, your loved ones, you know, um, have a good day and we want to make sure they go home safe. I think a lot of uh, lawmakers, decision makers, think it's a part-time job for kids, you know, to go out and have a good time and get a date. And it's not, it's far more than that. It's, it's very serious. You know, I, I found over the years that there's two types of people that come out of some kind of a, a, a very high intensity event, a tragic, a drowning or something. In fact, two lifeguards, one will be like, this is not for me. And they won't come back. And the other one, like myself and probably like Valerie, we embraced it. We said, Hey, we're never going to let this happen again. And we do our best to train and, and get the message out there and do what we can to prevent this from happening again. So I, I just wish that uh, America, you know, the governments and everything would take lifeguarding more serious, which would, would increase the pay rate. Uh, it would, it's not just a summer job, it's a career. That's Wyatt Werneth with the American Lifeguard Association. Thank you for your time, Wyatt. Thanks for having me, guys. Look forward to hearing from me again. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. After the break, we continue talking uh, to local organizations about lifeguarding. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. <laughs> 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about lifeguard shortages nationwide, how it impacts residents in our state. With us on Zoom, Valerie Stolfi Collins, Executive Director of the Connecticut Recreation and Parks Association. We're going to hear from one of your members, Valerie, in just a couple of minutes. But I wanted to ask, you know, what is the typical pay for a summer lifeguarding gig? Sure. And it obviously varies by community, but it's anywhere uh, today um, from 15 to $17 per hour. Um, and again, varies based on municipality and what their budgets can afford. Um, and, and again, that's with a 2 to $4 increase from pre-pandemic rates. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you said, we, we are trying to eke up there, especially with the minimum wage increase and the fact that there are shortages. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's... That's an increase with uh, to try to recruit. Um, the other problem that we are seeing, though, is, you know, we are getting pressure, as Wyatt said, from the, the legislature or elected officials to keep our access rates low. Yet we can't keep our access rates low and increase our hourly wages at the same time. So the revenue has to be there in order for us to pay higher wages. Mm. That makes sense. And so you are you have Parks and Rec directors also offering signing bonuses. And what about, yes. you know, covering certification costs? How much do those go for? Certainly. So we do have some towns getting very creative. Multiple municipalities this year for the first time ever increased pay rates per hour, but then also said, we will pay your lifeguard certification fees, um, which range um, around $250 um, if you give us the season. So basically you work the eight to 11 week season and at the very end, we'll give you that $250 back. Um, so um, that's a first um, time ever that anybody's done that from the municipal standpoint, but it's necessary in order to, to be competitive and hire guards. Mm-hmm. Uh, with us also on Zoom is Bailey Daly, who's Recreation Supervisor at Winding Trails. That's in Farmington, Connecticut, and also is co-chair of the Aquatics Section for the Connecticut Recreation and Parks Association. Bailey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So what does lifeguard training look like? Um, well, it varies a little bit because there is different, um, as Wyatt said, there's different lifeguarding. So it's just regular pool lifeguarding, waterfront, water park. Um, so your basic, you know, lifeguarding training, it's about a 27-hour course, depending on if it's blended learning, online learning, or just all in classroom. Um, but you're starting off, you know, we have prerequisites for those courses, and you're starting off with a 300-yard swim or 550-yard swim. Um, to start that class and it goes through obviously various training skills and rescue scenarios, CPR, first aid, all of those throughout that course, making sure that those guards are ready to respond in an emergency. And so um, they can be hired at 16, so the training can start at 15? That is correct for the um, American Red Cross, which is I'm an instructor trainer through that certification. Um, you have to be 15 by the end of that course. So if someone is 15 and looking for a job the when they turn 16, life learning is a great way to go. Um, many park and rec associations and other um, municipalities offer life learning courses through the summer and throughout the school year as well. I mentioned your recreation supervisor at Winding Trails in Farmington. So what has it been like the last couple of years uh, for you in terms of, you know, having, um, being able to find uh, lifeguards or even people interested in taking the certification courses? Well, definitely with COVID, um, we had a lot of restrictions as far as courses went. Um, For 2020, we basically couldn't train and we couldn't run those lifeguarding courses. So that kind of stopped the shortage. And I'm talking statewide, not just here. 
And luckily we were able to run classes last year. We ran three classes here um, and we're a seasonal place. We can only run them in the summertime. We don't have a pool here. Um, and we're running two more classes um, this year, but I know many other municipalities um, are doing the same thing. We're trying to run as many classes as we can um, with the instructors that we have. You know, when we think about learning to swim, you know, often parents, if they're able or can, are signing up their kids pretty young, and then those swim lessons might taper off as they get older. And so I'd love to hear from you about your experience. When we think about, uh, you know, making sure that, that children have, um, you know, strong swimming skills and not to assume that, that they, they know enough uh, because we, as we know, drownings can happen very quickly. Yes, they can. Um, and I'm always going to say learn to swim classes are the best thing to start with. Um, you know, the American Red Cross starts with uh, learn to swim classes for um, parent and child aquatics or six month old. So that even just starts getting comfortable in the water. And that leads to the water competency that, you know, Wyatt was kind of talking about. Um, but definitely um, learn to swim classes start at age three. Those are some preschool levels and go up from there. Um, and yes, they do taper off as they get older and their water competency becomes actually greater as they're older and they've been through these lessons. But starting learn to swim when you can and as early as you can is really the best bet because it's not just learning to swim. There's safety skills intertwined into those lessons as well that may come across as a game, but it's learning a major life skill. You've mentioned water competency, and we heard Wyatt also talk about that. But maybe elaborate a little bit more, because Wyatt even said it can start in the bathtub. Yeah, of course. I mean, like I said, it could start with those, you know, infant aquatics lessons, and it's just getting used to the water and getting used to water on your face without wiping it off, just like Wyatt said. And those skills are definitely reinforced in those learn to swim classes and parents can also look at those and kind of practice with their children outside of those, obviously in a safe space as well. Um, but those are taught just by blowing bubbles in a preschool class. I mean, that is starting water competency and getting used to that water in your face and going from there and learning how to get to the side of a pool or exit the water safely. Those are little skills that are learned in a learn to swim class that may not seem that big, but they are huge to building those skills. Mm. Bailey, you're a water safety instructor. So even the importance of learning to float. Oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Which starts in some of those classes, even in the you know parent um, child aquatics classes. I'm also um, an instructor trainer. So I train water safety instructors and we talk about just helping those little guys, you know, getting used to putting their head back in the water when the parent is holding them. Same with preschool aquatics. We learn floats assisted and then move on to unassisted um, and how to get to the side of the pool or exit the water using those floating techniques. Um, so that's all part of learn to swim classes. Valerie Stolfi Collins is still with us, Executive Director of Connecticut Recreation and Parks Association. We've been spending time talking about water competency and also, you know, the fact that uh, drownings can happen quickly and it's uh, silent. Um, so I'm wondering, Valerie, if you can talk more about that. Certainly. So yes, um, a lot of people have a misconception that drowning is noisy. It's actually silent. So during the pandemic, and, and we started this water safety um, PR social media campaign, actually pre-pandemic, and then it worked out well since a lot of people were putting those temporary pools in their backyards. We decided to morph our social media campaigns into myths versus facts around water safety so parents could be a little more astute about um, water safety when they were going to the beaches or 
if they had those blow up pools or kiddie pools in their backyard specifically. Um, so um, we, we've been doing a few different things. We've did a water safety PR campaign on our social media account for our members to then share with all of their communities. And then we also created a water safety event handbook for our members. So when they kick off their water, um, the, you know, opening their pools or their waterfronts, it's a dry land handbook where um, they can teach kids about water safety at a younger elementary level before they go into those swim lessons. And that is, you know, never swim in an unsupervised area, um, reach or throw, don't go, look before you leap. It's utilizing the Red Cross whale's tails, but it's also utilizing some of the Stu Leonard's, um, you know, Stewie the Duck learns to swim information. Um, and Stu Leonard's was kind enough to donate books that we then give to all the communities um, that host these events. There are two coming up, June 18th in Manchester and July 8th in Windsor. So if you're in or around those communities, um, you should contact their park and rec department and sign up for those programs. That'll, they're fun um, station-based activities that can teach younger elementary kids how to be safe in and around water. And then obviously you want to get swim lessons for your children as well, because mm -hmm. swim lessons are the number one prevention to drowning. Um, and I can tell you that many communities offer swim lessons. Um, municipalities offer over 60,000 swim lessons annually to Connecticut residents. And they are offered at one of the most affordable rates. The average is about $54 for eight to 10 half an hour lessons. Um, that's less than six, six $7 a lesson for a half an hour. Um, some communities such as Waterbury offer free lessons. So if you're a Waterbury resident, you can get lessons from your local park and rec department for zero cost. Um, that's where I started out lifeguarding. They were free back in the 90s and 2000s, and they're still free today. Mm -hmm. I know you were talking to Wyatt about affordability, and I can tell you the municipal recreation departments are the most affordable swim lessons you can find out there. Well, I'm glad to, to hear that, that there are um, programs available, uh, Valerie, uh, to help, uh, especially in communities where, you know, maybe they can't afford, uh, you know, consistent swim lessons, but to know that there are, are programs out there that provide them for free, that's really an important uh, public service for everyone. Yes, um, it is. And um, I can tell you, too, um, a lot of the strong swimmers that come out of our swim lessons, we kind of recruit as well to become lifeguards. So they're great feeder programs and can help us with the lifeguard shortage in the future as well. Anything before we um, end the show, anything more that the, the state can do? I'm talking about the Connecticut General Assembly, even our governor, Valerie, you know, to help uh, with this, this shortage or even with some of making the pay even more competitive uh, to attract more people to this life-saving work. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I honestly believe that the state could put money into giving free certifications um, to getting people lifeguard trained and getting people water safety instructor trained. It's it's costly. And when a family looks at their 15 year old going to start their first ever job, they might not have the resources, the, you know, 250 to $350 to start that training off. So maybe running free courses throughout the state um, would help. I know DEEP has done that in the past for just their lifeguards that they hire, but maybe we need to look at a broader picture and have the state utilize some of the ARPA funds to train lifeguards in the state of Connecticut, regardless of where they work, whether it's a municipality or the state beaches. 
That's Valerie Stolfi Collins, again, Executive Director of Connecticut Recreation and Parks Association. You mentioned uh, the ARPA money. We know that the state still has plenty of it unspent. So it's good to hear that there is another way uh, to help municipalities as well as uh, residents uh, statewide. Valerie, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Also, Bailey Daly was here, Recreation Supervisor at Winding Trails in Farmington, co-chair of the Aquatic Section for the Connecticut Recreation and Parks Association. Bailey, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Kate Talarski was our technical director. We'll be back tomorrow.